This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Quade Wonker. He is the co-founder and CEO of Bezel. Their website is getbezel.com. Quade, welcome. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So you are a Los Angeles local. You live uh, not too far from me here, um, but we actually haven't met yet. So this is a good introduction and I am familiar with your business. You are another uh, member of the Watch Sales Platform Club. Uh, welcome to this elite <laughs> elite group of, uh, of, of, of people, huh? Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. It's, it's, uh, it's been super fun so far. I really like speaking to people who are entrepreneurs and decide to get into the watch industry space. There is uh, not, not sort of this overt way of saying it, but essentially, if you play with watches, you essentially get to be a kid as an adult. It's a very serious thing. There's a lot of money behind it, and these are obviously wonderful items. But at the end of the day, I think what what gravitates people towards this is the idea is very fun. Did it feel like a fun idea for you to get into the watch industry? Absolutely. I mean, I was coming from a place where, you know, my job before this, I had a second monitor on my desk where I was constantly watching YouTube videos about watches, staying up to date with watch kind of data and what's going on with the watch market. So the fact that this is my job every day, it just doesn't really feel real. So 100%, it doesn't really feel like work at all. Uh, And I'm in a place now where, you know, we're selling a bunch of watches and I get to see them come through every single day. And it just, you know, it feels like I, I can't wait to go to the office every single day. It's pretty great. Is it fun in the way that you thought it would be fun? Because I think that sometimes when people enter an industry that is related to a hobby that they have, it can be great or it can change their relationship with that hobby. Has it proven to be fun in ways that you expected or maybe there's other fun things that you didn't expect? Absolutely. It's a great question. And I think it's it's fun in a lot of the ways that I expected in the sense that you know I'm able to see these watches that I wasn't otherwise able to see every single day. Um, I'm able to see like my grail watches be sold and have them come through and it's an awesome feeling. But then also from, you know, my background is very much in the technology space and I was an enthusiast or a collector to now see in an intimate level, the the business aspect of watches and, you know, work with sellers on a daily basis and things on that side. I think that was the part of the equation that was relatively new to me. And, and obviously a lot, a large cornerstone of our business is the authentication side. So everything ships through to us for authentication. So you know, you're getting to see kind of the the not so fun side of the industry as well, as far as you know, sometimes the the deception and the you know the the fraudulent side too, which is <laughs> in many ways eye opening. Um, so it's kind of been a great mix. Well, I guess I have to ask now that you've seen behind the veil, so to say, what are some of the things that you would have liked to know when you were still just a collector that you think maybe everyone who's a collector would like to know, maybe don't want to throw in their face, but again, what are what are some of the 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 the, the nuggets of knowledge that you learned once you stepped behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean it's I think it's like it's like anything that is that is heavily collected, right? Where you see especially in the luxury space, a lot of the collectors, and there's obviously a, a spectrum of collectors. There's collectors that I think, as you mentioned, that veil, like uh, certain collectors have different degrees of ability to, to pull back that veil. I think the type of collector that I was, I was I was relatively new to the watch space and I, I, I kind of was very much on the retail side. So I think you, you get to see, you know, kind of like how the the ship works and how the, the parts work and how they come together. It's almost like 
in every luxury industry, there is the the kind of user facing like roll out the red carpet champagne deal at an authorized dealer. Um, and then there's the other side of the spectrum where, you know, you're seeing these watches at uh, conferences like IWJG and like the, the difference of how these items are, are portrayed and handled. It's, you know, there's, there's kind of that boutique feel for a customer, but there's also that, you know, very transactional wholesale environment to the watch world. And, and I think I was completely blind to that as, as a consumer um, I, don't, I don't know if it's something that should be available to the consumers. And it's kind of, I don't know if you lose the luster <laughs> of the watch collecting, but uh, it's certainly been very surprising for me to, to kind of dive into that and learn about that. I'm very curious about the difference between when you got into watches and when I got into watches. I think we sort sure. of got into it in, in similar ways where yeah. we'd basically be doing something else and in the background be reading about watches online and just, you know, absorbing mm-hmm. information. But there's a very different, uh, I think, generational difference. When when I first started getting into watches in the early 2000s, there was not the amount of editorialized content. In fact, there was a deficiency of it. Very little of the content had an opinion. It was a lot of just tech specs, press releases. The opinion was um, uh, in the in the form of you know posts on forums and things like that, which was not sure. really meant to discuss this topic to a mainstream. It's sort of like by club members, for club members. And if you didn't understand that conversation, it wasn't very accessible. And so what I had to do was hunt to try to understand what is this stuff all about. Today, I think there's a very different landscape, and it's not better or worse, it's just different, whereas you have this huge amount of, I'll just call them talking heads, tons of opinions, most of them biased with some type of agenda, like they want you to buy this, this, or that. Some of them just their own opinion, and they just want to be sensational, and they hate something for no other reason than hate gets views. But within that context of learning about watches with a, a an absolute ecosystem of, of of opinions. What do you think that was like? Difference for me because again, it's it's it was a very different context. I'm just wondering if if you think that may um uh, have materially affected uh, in in a different way. You know how you got into watches. Yeah, I think it was really interesting in the sense that you're you're totally right in the sense that there is a a lot of information out there. The it was a little bit less of finding the information and a little bit more of figuring out who had the right information, I would say, is the the way that framed my earliest stage of collecting. Okay. I, I got into collecting as soon as I got my first meaningful job. Um, so I worked at Google straight out of college and, and I my first bonus went to buying a watch. I had always kind of grown up infatuated by watches, but they always felt like these things that they were very expensive and unattainable and and I just lusted for them, but I, I never had like a practical ability to acquire them. So um, as soon as I was able to do that, I, I think it was a bit of what you were talking about in the sense of like scouring forums. I was on Reddit. I was on YouTube. I was following all the creators there. Um, I also kind of came up with it in a world where general other collectibles started to to blossom a bit in the sense that, you know, if you had folks that were starting to focus on collecting art rationally, they were collecting you know, there's the whole crypto thing going on. So I think there was also this like rational aspect to collecting when when I started to collect more seriously in an way where it was very dangerous. Because um, it's not rational, folks, right? 100%. Yeah, you had folks, I think, <laughs> that were entering the space for in many ways the wrong reason. It's um, sort of like, here's a guidebook on how to navigate your drug addiction. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. Totally. And, and it, it felt very much like a justification. And I would be lying if I said that I didn't fall in the same trap where... 
you know, when you're justifying making such a large purchase, but then you're able to rationalize to yourself, hey, like, you know, it's an investment. It, it at the worst, it it you know, it, I'm parking value into this item. It allows you to, in many ways, fuel the passion. And I certainly fell into that. But I think that was kind of, you know, the added information I imagine that was that was different from when you started becoming a collector and and I did. As I was asking, I was sort of thinking to myself, actually, what the ramifications of that are. And a big part of it is what to look for. For me, I was always incentivized to look for the sort of strange stuff, the weird stuff, the things that people don't want, because that's where you could sort of get the deals. Because the idea was that these are all good watches, but there's so many rare esoteric brands out there that are otherwise great, but just not well known. I liked hunting for them because, again, I was in my, you know, I was very young. I was... I think I was about 20 years old when I started getting the watches. What was exciting for me was what I could get. Now, it seems to be the complete opposite. There seems to be, yes, people that are interested in what's rare, but what I have found is if a watch or brand isn't spoken about, isn't hyped, in, in, using one manner of speech, then a vast majority of consumers won't talk about it. And I think that's what's so interesting is I came from the sort of generation of of, of people who really had to hunt and make their own decision. Is this a good watch? Whereas today, a lot of people, for whatever reason, don't feel they can or need to make a decision on their own, and they hyper-rely on the opinions of others. And I think this is really important because even though it's psychology, it does talk, it does go into the element of tech because how this is presented, how this hobby is presented to someone, especially from a purchase opportunity, is so crucial. And I think that there's so many places to buy watches specifically because people who are buying them have very truly different needs, even though on the surface it looks like they're all buying watches. You know what I mean? Totally. And I think, you know, we see a varying different type of buyer and they all have different motivations. And and I certainly fall somewhere on that spectrum as well in the sense that like, you know, you have the buyer that is doing exactly what you're describing and looking for the hunt and, and wants something that is a specific condition and a specific example and, and a specific year and a specific item. And, and that's the kind of focus for the, how they like to collect. And, and that, that hunt is the kind of romanticized, exciting part of the process. And then you certainly also have buyers and we have these buyers every single day that, you know, just want to enter the market because, you know, they, they want their first Rolex. And for them, that meant, you know, something meaningful, like they've, they've arrived or it's the flex culture of watches. I think, you know, the way that we think about collectors at Bezel is, is largely, you know, the fun storytelling of all of those individuals interacting together in this community that is the watch collecting community and just making sure that, you know, there's, there's complete transparency for all in the sense that like, you know, some of these these buyers fully understand the market and they they kind of buy into that shop to seller mentality and they know what to look for and they're acutely aware of that and they're they're you know almost like professional collectors and there are also these buyers out there that have no idea what they're doing and and uh, it's quite an intimidating thing to enter the space and and have to understand the difference between the reference models and and what I should be looking for and who I should be buying from and, and all that aspect and so kind of our job was to just offer the, the best watches possible and the, the best customer experience possible to make sure that we could serve all of that. I want to sort of create this distinction that I think very much exists in the places to buy watches. And I like your response on where you feel that bezel fits in. And I think I'm sure. going to guess, but essentially this is how it, the first types of places to buy watches online, for lack of a better term, was a shoppable catalog. 
if you knew what you were looking for, you had access to sort through what was available and make decisions about pricing and you can negotiate a little bit, but you had to know more or less exactly what you wanted, which was very good for a certain type of highly knowledgeable enthusiast. But that type of platform had nothing to do with demand creation, meaning if someone was just browsing and needed help, there was not a good chance that that experience was going to get them to buy something because, again, there's there's really no uh, help in any way. The other side of it is the sort of, we'll call it the totally curated approach. And here, you assume that the customer wants to have a good experience, but outside of that, they're not married to any particular model or any particular brand, or maybe outside of a price point, they're not even really sure what they want to do. And there, they need either hand-on attention from a salesperson or something like that, or some type of guide or some type of funnel that says, here's what you should be wanting, here's the things out there, and here's how to find something for yourself. And I think that that has been the biggest development and where a lot of the investment is, is how do you take people who generally want to enjoy a good watch and help them in a, I hate to call it an automated way, but in a funnel approach, get them yeah. to make a purchase decision. So where where does Bezel fall within this sort of ecosystem? I think it's it's a really interesting question. I think there's there's one other kind of axis that I would that I would add to that too in the way that okay. we think about it, right? Where there's like you kind of you talked a lot about discovery there, right? Where you know I either know what I want or I kind of need help narrowing down what I want because I just know that I want to watch, but I'm not really sure even you know what size is what and what fits on my wrist and how that works. There's also this other kind of metric that we care a lot about, which is like kind of based on trust, I would say, and. And, and almost like experience level of the buyer in the sense that you might have a buyer that knows exactly what they want from a reference perspective, but they have no idea who to buy it from, what's a good example of it, what should they pay attention to, and who should they trust in the industry. And then you have buyers that, you know, you know, have no idea what they want and they, you know, they maybe do have a high trust level because they have a certain buyer or, or a seller that they work with in the past. So I think the thing that that, that we set out to do is like, our position and the way we entered the market was oriented towards building out the best experience possible for this first-time buyer. So that's someone that in many ways might know what they want. Like we focus on curation and, and kind of giving you a, an experience as if you didn't know what you want. We have a concierge on staff to work with you and you know help you narrow it on options. But I think as far as the search goes, it comes down to just having the inventory to be able to find the piece that you want if you wanted to, you know, query a, a, a database of watches and find that piece. But there's that other lever of trust, right? Where, like, what are the things that we can do to make sure that when you're on a page that for, you finally narrow it down to get that watch, right? Like, you're not then questioning who is the seller or, you know, are the condition photos legitimate or you're not concerned in making that purchase from a trust perspective. So I'd say like we sit very much on the first time buyer, but the goal is to scale out the inventory further and further to make sure that we're kind of serving the whole market in that sense. So let's talk about the product and you come from a technology background. And my guess is that you built a product that you yourself want to use. Sure. Could you explain a little bit about what it is you actually built? I think that there's a big difference between, you know, I put up a website yep. and I use some existing technology, Shopify or whatever, to have a, a store. Explain a little bit about what you built and, and, and why that outside of the the watch side of it is something to be proud of. Totally. So I, I think the way that we like to describe ourselves is a, a technology-first, authenticated marketplace for, for high-end watches. Uh, the main delta in, in the way that we think about ourselves, so there's really like three high-level ways that we like to think uh, we differentiate ourselves. The first is, you know, in-house authentication. So the way the platform works, 
you know, we have a number of buyers and sellers in the platform. Sellers will list their inventory. These could be sellers that are professional dealers that list in other competitive marketplaces, or this could be, you know, a, a retail seller that's selling their first watch they they bought from an authorized dealer. Once the watch is, is sold on the platform, it's shipped to us in-house. We authenticate the watch. We diagnostic test the watch uh, and make sure that, you know, after checking multiple touch points, that you're getting exactly what you would expect from a buyer perspective when you're putting that watch on your wrist. We overnight everything and, and the process is, is done that way. I think the, the second point of differentiation for us is just like the overall customer experience. We very much run the business like a technology company. And, and I like to think that from an ethos perspective, it's like half technology company, half watch company. Um, in the sense that we have folks that work here that, you know, have backgrounds from Google and Amazon and other competitive startups kind of in the same room with folks that, you know, have backgrounds at top auction houses and authentication and, and watchmaking backgrounds. And I think that novel overlapping of thought allows us to build something that feels a little bit different in the watch space and ideally pushes it towards a slightly new direction. So uh, we started as, as a mobile app. The goal there is to focus heavily on user experience and you have a, a web app as well now, but the goal is that it should feel like you're using any of your favorite, you know, technology products across other verticals. But, you know, this place we're just serving specifically watches. And then from a brand and, a, you know, a quality of, of execution perspective, the watch market sways decidedly younger than even I imagined, uh, specifically in the pre-owned space. So, you know, can we build out a brand that feels modern and thoughtful and feels like it resonates kind of with this new generation of, of collectors that are entering the secondary market? That makes uh, and, sense. Uh, yeah. What was missing, though? I guess, you know, you start by a user. You yourself are using the tools you're buying and you're basically saying, well, this doesn't work or there should be like this. Explain a little bit about right before Bezel came out. What what do you feel that the market needed that was missing or what were the other, you know, platforms doing not as well? Because obviously you build something not just because, but for the need uh, of, of innovation. Totally, 100%. And I think it's one of those fun problems where, I was such a user of the other platforms and 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 just wanted a, a better solution here. So it's like, you know, there's nothing more fun than building a business around solving a problem that you yourself are having. I think the challenge was if you look at the, you know, the average first-time watch buyer in, in in the watch buying space, they start their journey by, you know, if they're buying one of these larger kind of top hyped brands, they walk into a Rolex boutique, they're told that they have to be put on a wait list, they're told no, and then they walk out into the secondary market. And there's a lot of options, but they, you know, don't know where to go. And if you look at the rest of the landscape, it's, you know, folks are either po pushed to like a local dealer that they know or, or like an inventory dealer, a dealer that is basically buying the watches and stocking them. Um, but, you know, they might not have what you want in stock. So then they're pushed to, to one of the competitive marketplaces. The problem with the competitive marketplaces is, you know, they're not handling authentication in-house in many ways. Uh, they're not verticalized in some of the cases, and it just doesn't feel like the expected product offering that you want. I just felt lost as a collector in the sense that I was looking to buy my first larger piece. I didn't really know where to land. And I had just been so used to collecting sneakers in apps like Goat and StockX, where the expectation was, you know, there's a name brand marketplace. It handles all the authentication. I love the brand. I love the product. I love the trust. And my expectation as a relatively new cu customer at the time was, why doesn't this exist in watches? Um, and we just kind of profiled a bunch of other collectors and got a lot of, you know, legends in the watch world to kind of gather around the table to build out that watch credibility. And, and kind of we built it from there. 
Interesting. So what I hear is that you felt there was a lack of a branded store. You like the products, but you sort of, this is, again, we'll call it the last mile problem where someone gets excited about something, but where do they go to fulfill that demand? Where do they go to buy it? You're right, especially as a novice coming in, you know, there is a huge amount of caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware, a huge amount of, I don't know what I'm going to end up getting. I'm not sure who I can trust. I'm not sure what recourse I have if there's going to be a problem. And if you are someone who is actively buying a lot, maybe even selling a lot, you want to reduce the number of hassles. And I guess what that means is the unexpected, oh my gosh, on a regular basis, I buy watches that come to me in condition that I'm not happy with. It's not because I was tricked. It was because the 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 listing itself was extremely unclear, left a lot yeah. open to the imagination. And I know what I'm going in for. And I spend a low enough amount that like, if it's just a total wash, I'm like, whatever. And I have, a, I have an area of just like sure. watches that will never get on someone's wrist. <clears throat> I was just trying. Sometimes I spent under $100 on it. But I, I'm, I'm guessing that's sort of what you want to avoid. You want to have a, a 100% wow, I'm impressed. That's what I wanted to be experienced every time. Or, or, or am I misunderstanding some of the issues that you were trying to avoid? No, I think that's, I think that's spot on in the sense that like the, the core problem for me as a consumer was, you know, on bezel today, our, our AOV is, you know, just north of, of our average order value is just north of $10,000. Like this is the, biggest purchase I was making as a, as a consumer ever. And to be making it online, particularly, it felt extra scary, right? And I think the expectation of, as you were kind of speaking to that, having to read a bunch of warning labels and shop the seller and do a ton of research and, you know, have to get it independently authenticated by a watchmaker that I didn't even know and have to find them somewhere. And that whole process just felt very scary and intimidating for someone that, you know, was really excited about the hobby from an abstract perspective. But, you know, when I went to go obtain the pieces that I wanted, it just felt like, how did I know I was going to get what I want? And that just felt like, you know, not the ideal expectation matching perspective. And it's like, I want to spend this thing. I want to feel luxury. I want to feel like I'm now part of this club, but I'm on the outskirts of the club in the beginning. And I don't know how to break my way in without making a mistake that is financially a burden or scary or whatever that is. So the goal with Bezel was just, you know, how do you lower that barrier of entry for a first-time collector, pair them with a concierge on the team so that if there's any questions, you're talking to a real human, you know, build out a brand that folks could, you know, trust in the sense that they knew that Bezel always had their back. It was authenticated in-house. And it was one of the biggest fears when we were starting the business is I knew that we would stop sales from happening. Like I knew that there would be inauthentic watches that come through. Sure. And what would we do in that case? Because it's still an unfortunate situation. If you're the buyer and you bought a watch to the platform, we protected you, sure, but you know, you're not getting that watch and you were excited about it. And it's always a bummer when, you know, the watch or the item that you're purchasing online is delayed, whatever that is. But a hundred percent of the buyers that we've had those those protections or the, the protected cases happen, they've gone and, you know, repurchased the bot a watch or we've been able to support their collecting journey in some way. So uh, there's been a lot of positive reception with that. So it's it just shows that, you know, I think people are are generally concerned about getting what they want and the expectation being met. Well, there's, there's, I think, two issues here. One issue is that if you collect watches for any number of time, you immediately realize that prices are, are all over the place. And that's sometimes sure. for the exact same product. Depending on who you buy from and how, you know, you can spend a huge difference in, in money for the same product. But at the same time, you also realize that 
to a degree, you get what you pay for. So it's this sort of strange attempt to reconcile the fact that you know you need to shop around because there oftentimes are better prices out there, but you also know that people are actively trying to deceive you. So it's how do you create, and again, tell me, I like your thoughts here, but how do you create enough buyer protection but not so much buyer protection that it necessitates a, a, a lot of extra margin or a lot of extra cost, which makes you no longer competitive to sell that product, right? Totally. And I, I think like the, the way that we've run our business, particularly in the earliest stages, is, is like there's no, there's no cost too much to protecting a buyer is the way that we typically run this in the sense that, you know, we have sellers that are that are on one side of the the marketplace and we have our buyers that are trying to transact on them. If there is an issue at all, we do everything we possibly can to protect the buyer and protect the seller in the situation there. If the seller is doing something that's intentionally nefarious, then, you know, it's, it's a different situation. But the goal there is we understand that there needs to be a certain margin that's made by the seller and we understand that the buyer needs to not have to feel that burden. So that's where we just have to get very creative on our end and do everything we can to kind of protect this sale in that situation. So we'll turn away sales if the watch is, you know, not up to our quality bar. I would say we have a top of funnel and a bottom of funnel authentication process. The top of funnel is basically at point of list. Uh, everything before it goes live on the platform is digitally viewed by an authenticator on our team. So we're doing everything to make sure the condition photos seem right. The reference feels like it's matching the expectations. Nothing seems odd about the listing. And about 10 to 20% of the watches that come through the platform are, are rejected at that stage, depending on the month. And then we check again in-house doing a number of tests with actual you know, hands-on on the watch. And another 10 to 20% of the sales are rejected at that point. So um, it's been this tough thing where we're super long-term oriented. And, and our bet is we never want a customer to feel like, we let anything to some even tiny degree get by if it wasn't up to the exact quality ex- expectations that we would have for a piece because we wanted to make a sale happen. It's largely just, you know, we want to build a relationship with these collectors from their first watch to, you know, their collecting journey years after. So, you know, we're very intentional about that. And, and it's a little bit less of a margin concern and more about just a customer experience concern. So let's go to the other side of it, which is we'll call it the dealer, because as far as I know, Bezel is not a a store in the sense you have inventory. You are um, a a platform, a marketplace, so to say. Yes. And one of the things that people who have watches, dealers do is they shop around. They try to find those marketplaces that have the right combination of audience, uh, terms that are, you know, uh, friendly to them, um, you know, fees that are attractive to them. And so from your end, Talk a little bit about trying to make sure that you encourage them to list and do business with you, but also creating enough protections so that they can't engage in funny business, right? Because let's be honest, a lot of the dealers, not all of them, but a lot of them are are looking for platforms that allow them to get away with as much as humanly possible. And they will be on those platforms that allow them to get away with as much as humanly possible. So the question is, how do you say Despite the fact that we're going to block some transactions, this yeah. is why having your inventory and bezel is a good idea. Totally. And I think the, the long-term bet that we make right now is by building out this trust with our customer base, that's ostensibly the moat that we are building around the market in the sense that you know, if, if we are truly making this promise and we are, we are making good on this promise to our buyer base and our, our clients, 
then these clients will will stick to us. Like 20% of our total sales in the year that we've existed have been repeat purchasers. These folks, once they feel like they're safe and they're comfortable and they're and they're cared for, then you know they keep transacting. So the pitch from the very beginning for getting sellers on board was look, like we will ultimately sell more watches for you if we're able to build an environment like this from a buyer side. On the sell side though, our promise to our sellers is always that, you know, we're going to be as transparent and easy as possible for you to use. So a lot of the big benefits that we have for sellers is we handle the entire client relationship. So, you know, if a client's asking questions, we're the one that's dealing with the client, we are disambiguating the relationship and it just allows, you know, sellers in many ways to list their inventory on our platform and then just sell watches in their sleep. And we have, you know, watch ops individuals on our staff that are building relationships with customers. They're tracking down watches for them and they are just basically professionally selling these other sellers inventory. So that was the first big thing. The second is from a transparency perspective, from a payout perspective, we have, you know, some of the lowest fees in the industry. We make it very clear with the seller when you list a watch, what your payout will be. We pay out faster than anyone else. We basically sat down with a lot of the largest professional dealers in the US and said, hey, what are the biggest problems you're having right now from a business perspective? And and how can we enhance that process instead of feeling like, ugh, another marketplace that I have to list on that I have to spend time on that I have to train someone on. So a lot of that, and that just goes back to kind of the technology business approach in the sense of, you know, how do we build really elegant technological solutions around existing problems in the watch industry and and give our sellers a little bit of like a, a breath of fresh air to the process that feels like we're not a burden to them. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way and, and, and you know, things happen, but then it comes down to, you know, the same way that we have our buyers uh, a concierge experience for all of them. Like we have someone in house that interacts with every seller on the platform and is there if there's a question and is there to kind of enhance their process as much as possible. And and that's really been the push pull relationship I think we have with our buyers and sellers. And and we're learning a lot as we're growing. And I think we're just trying to be as open as possible to make sure that you know we're constantly dynamically building new things to support new problems that pop up. But it's been super awesome. We're we launched in June of last year, and we we just sim- symbolically broke our two hundred and fifty million dollars in inventory listed on the platform mark. So uh, we are scaling, you know, fifty percent month over month from both an inventory and a sales perspective, and it's been super awesome to kind of see it grow. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's Authenticity Guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an Authenticity Guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase, because everyone deserves real. So let's talk a little bit about tool making, right? Because we like watches because they're tools. And I think sometimes when we use the term technology company, that can be a little bit vague 
for everyone that doesn't live in California and understands the technology industry. Absolutely. But you're essentially making tools. And, and again, we go back to what does it mean to be a technology company? You're not just creating a marketplace, but you're trying to create tools uh, to help facilitate that. And you also mentioned long-term. What are some of the tools that you've recently made, which you're excited about, that, that you're working on, or that you might like to have that are technology tools that would speed up, make more fun, make more pretty the entire practice of what Bezel is doing. Absolutely. So this is the fun part, and this is kind of what I was what I was hinting at earlier when I said the kind of overlapping expertise in the Bezel office is just what makes me most excited to work here in the sense that, you know, you have a room of folks that come from Sotheby's and Christie's and the auction world and, and watching backgrounds, and you have a room of folks that come from the Googles and the Amazons and the tech startups of the world. What ends up happening is like a problem will come up that is maybe not on the radar of the folks on the technology side, but then a solution will be built around a product or a feature or whatever in the app, leveraging technology to solve the problem in a way that I think was never being solved in the watch space prior. So uh, a great example of this right now is that we launched mobile first, meaning that obviously we, we had an app first, which felt different for the watch space generally. Everything was done in-house. All the features are built in-house. And right now, we're launching out uh, a web seller platform. And, you know, it's awesome for buyers to buy on a phone. It feels super great. It's also it's just not the best experience to manage your larger seller business on a phone. So we got a bunch of different feedback from professional sellers. We sat down with professional sellers. We got their notes. We, you know, got a bunch of ideas from them. And we built a a platform to basically host their, you know, entire watch selling experience on Bezel as a website. And we launched the first version to a few of our kind of seller investors or earliest partners. And then from there, we broadened it out to a bunch more sellers and are about to release, you know, a new version of that this week. And it's a super fun iterative process in the sense that, you know, it'll be a conversation with a seller saying, hey, I wish that I was able to do this certain thing on the other platforms that I work with or on Bezel. And, you know, we can throw it on a whiteboard and we spec out how it can kind of look and feel. We let them play with the prototype and then we ultimately build it and it becomes a feature for all of our sellers. That's kind of the way that we run the entire business where, you know, we built out the foundation of, of what we can kind of have from a transactional marketplace on the buy side. And then we have buyers request you know, a certain other feature and a lot of them are requesting this feature so we can just build it in. And that's the luxury of being super agile. And, and kind of when I say, you know, it sounds silly, I guess, that it's say we run like a technology business. I, I mean, you know, we're, we have all of our engineering team and design and product team in-house. So our, our kind of iteration cycles are, are very small and short in the sense that we're able to ship things really fast, figure out if they worked or not, how they received, tweak them to ultimately make the, the better version of our product, you know, very quickly. While we're on the topic of technology, I wanted your thoughts on an interesting sort of <laughs> sub-element of authentication, yeah. and that is, um, <laughs> it's it's almost uh, uh, you know a, a Don Quixote adventure at this point because I don't think it actually can work. But this idea that you can use blockchain tokens to create a perfect authentication tool for a physical watch. And I, I understand why a lot of people are excited about this, and they sort of talk about blockchain and, and you know NFT and, and, and cryptocurrencies related to watches as sort of an authentication technique. But you can't really do it because the idea is you would have to somehow permanently associate these numbers or this code with each part of the watch because yep. a lot of them can be replaced. 
Um, you know, I've come to the conclusion that given today's technology, you simply ha- cannot have a satisfyingly secure marriage between a blockchain token and a wristwatch. Do you do you share this opinion given current technology or contrary to what I'm saying? Is there a way of creating a, an absolute marriage between a token and a physical product? I think it's a very refreshing thing to hear you say that in the sense that I we have these conversations a lot. And, and I think a lot of individuals are, are thinking the the inverse of what you just said. I, I 100% agree in everything you just said. It's one of those things where like the blockchain, in our opinion, and, and a number of other interesting technologies, I, I think are can be leveraged to enhance an already existing and thoughtful authentication process. And and we're we're happy to use it in means to augment this process. But our focus has been, you know, good old fashioned getting the watch in your hand and and having experts spend time with the watch uh, to to ultimately authenticate it. I share the same concerns that you have, and it's something that you know we'll leverage. We don't leverage the blockchain at all on our authentication process. I think there is an interesting usage of it for some of the businesses that focus on vaulting and things like that in the sense that like I I now have my watch vaulted somewhere so then I'm holding like a NFT variant of it so I feel like I have some degree of ownership of it and and there's businesses I know that are trying to fractionalize watches on the investment side that it, it makes more sense but pure authentication uh, we believe on kind of doing it the old-fashioned way. Thank you because I've come to more or less the same conclusion it is that sort of ability to have an expert take a look at it. You can't even train AI. You know, it would be impossible to say like, okay, I look at this watch, pictures of it and tell me if it's real or not. Like an AI couldn't do that. It's it's just interesting for me that there's all these talking heads that just sort of like to say, we're using technology to make the totally. watch space better. But then you get into the nitty gritty and you're like, other than a lot of buzzwords and using a lot of trendy concepts and things like that, what are you actually doing which is better? And I think it goes into sort of the larger area of smoke and mirrors in the watch space. And it's a separation between actual inherent value, like things that are actually valuable, that are agreed upon between people with different opinions have value. And this sort of very fluid idea of market value, right? Like, oh, people really want it, so it's worth a lot. And I, I think that, you know, looking long term, this this sort of fluctuating idea of market value is less and less interesting to consumers because I think they see how 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 volatile it is. And as someone who has spent a lot of time looking at the at the you know the collectible shoe industry, yep. talk a little bit about how you think the watch industry is gonna go when it comes to this notion of market pricing, because I think that it's it's it, it, there's a little bit more data in the in the shoe space. There's just more things happening going on. You know what I mean? Like predict a little bit based on shoes. Where do you think the watch space is going to normalize into? Well, it's really interesting because you had a lot of new folks enter the watch space in the kind of pandemic era of watches because back to what we were talking about earlier, they entered the space in in a more rational way. Like, and when I say irrational, it's it's actually you know as you mentioned irrational, but it's an investment approach. It's not, I exactly. like that, I want to buy it. It's, I wonder if I'll be able to get my money back. Precisely, yes. And and you got, you, it's just generally, I think like that that was good and bad for watches. It was good in the sense that it created this interest in the community. And I think watches has, have, have penetrated pop culture more than ever in the sense that, you know, you're seeing like who's wearing what celebrity posts and athlete posts about watches in a way you never had. You're seeing the 
you know, mainstream articles, which we love talking about watches and like the proliferation of value and, and what they mean. Uh, I think the interesting question is, as the market's corrected a bit, do those collectors kind of like, did they buy their wa- their first watch as an investment? And then now are they hooked like I would have been? Or is it not as exciting for them anymore? I think it's something that we're yet to see, um, or I think we will see in the next couple of years. But um, comparatively to, to the sneaker market, I think like our whole our whole interest there is you're seeing a new class of sellers, I think, similar to the sneaker market, which is really interesting. And that's what, you know, a huge part of our business and, and why we love the prospect of going app first and doing the authentication and basically allowing folks to buy retail to retail. Stock or, or StockX and GOAT did an amazing job of, of not just making the watch market available from a seller perspective, or sorry, the sneaker market available from a seller perspective to these like larger sneaker sellers. They made it so... You know, anyone can buy a pair of sneakers and then trade that pair of sneakers for another pair of sneakers. And everyone trusted that sale because, you know, ultimately GOAT and StockX were the managed marketplace intermediary to make sure that everything was legit and authenticated, right? Like that didn't, that doesn't totally exist in the watch world today in the sense that uh, it's still very shop the seller centric. And so, we obscure the seller that you're buying the watch from. Your, your trust is ultimately with us. And we do everything we can to ensure that 100% of the watches that go through the platform are authentic, which allows me as a buyer of watches to start selling watches to another buyer, which I think you know increases the access to these watches and I think starts to actually make more of a true market where you see prices actually some come closer to kind of where they're demanded and there's a little bit less of folks withholding pieces to drive the market up. And there's just more transparency and symmetry in the market. And I think a world like that, and I think sneakers is, you know, five plus years ahead of watches in that space. But I think there's a number of things that, you know, there's, we're seeing more collabs in in watches similar to the sneaker space. The, wa- the, the watch market is swaying younger, like 60, the stat that, that we have is some 60 some percent of the, the pre-owned watch market buyers are millennial and Gen Z buyers. So I think, um, I saw that you like you know rowing blazers is a is a, a business that's obviously close to this podcast, um, and you're seeing the collabs with you know various watch brands and and Eric Wynn facilitating that and uh, yeah I think it's the watch world is starting to feel more and more to the sneaker world in some aspects but then I also think there's something so beautiful and you know storied about what watches are that that I think can't be compared to speakers to, to sneakers so I think it's it's really like you know, what are the good aspects of sneakers that can be brought into the watch world? And then what has to maintain, you know, truly just horological in that sense. But yeah, it's super interesting. Let's talk about StockX for a moment, because I remember um, a number of years ago when they expanded uh, their entire platform to watches from mainly shoes. They were very excited by it. And they, uh, this was 2017. I'm just looking on the website when they did this. And Uh, the founder, Mr. Luber, came uh, and he, we, we chatted about it and, and, and Josh Luber was was very excited about it. And it doesn't seem like they were able to to accomplish the mission they wanted to have. And, and, and just for everyone's information, they were not exactly trying to create a marketplace in the same in the same way that Bezel was or some others. There was more like, um, let's track the market value of this watch. Is it going up or down? And then sort of have a, a facilitation approach for sales. But they, I don't think that they consider that to be a remarkable success. What did they do wrong and what could they have done better in your opinion? I think it's true of a couple 
different verticals, but watches is certainly one of them in that I think when you're buying such an expensive and nuanced thing, the expectation as a buyer is that you are dealing with an expert in that. And I think the challenge of that is when you start to take the feeling of of expertise and you try to scale that, the only way to do that sustainably is to build awesome products that feel like they impart that same feeling on the buyer. And I think from a StockX perspective, if I was to pause it, and we have a lot of overlapping investors and we spent a lot of time talking to, to them in, in kind of our earliest days about, about what StockX was like in, in the early days from a watch perspective. I think that the challenge that I would imagine, particularly from like our growth, is we invested so much time and effort and energy and, and frankly money in building out a watch database, building out really nuanced features to what I was talking about earlier that feel like they support the experience, building out curation, building out user education, uh, working with the right creators, like telling the right story that feels authentic to the watch world. I think the watch world, and I'm curious your take on this, the watch community, unlike any other community I've been the pleasure of being a part of, can sniff out something that is inauthentic from like a interest perspective more than others. Like, you know, people are truly passionate about this space. And I think it you need to build a product that is so verticalized that, you know, it feels like we like to call ourselves like the watch expert or your watch expert in, in your pocket from an app perspective. And I think StockX was just so good at selling sneakers. And it was so much of, you know, their their, you know, GMV that they would put past through the marketplace that ultimately, you know, watches weren't quite the priority they probably needed to be. I think what I'm hearing that you're saying, and and probably the big takeaway here, is that the attention to detail and every step of the process for watches is so important that if you're not doing it, someone else is going to do it better. And exactly. the consumer, the more sophisticated they get, the more demands they have on fairness, on transparency. And it's a very strange thing because, the and, and this is an issue in the watch space, where if you're a retailer... Um, one of the funny things that you muse about is how much you hate your existing customers. Like you always want someone new because you would prefer to have someone who knows a little bit less because the challenge of working with an existing buyer is high. They want they don't want you to make that much money. The irony is that the existing buyers who keep you in business because they keep coming back for more. So no, they don't allow you to make a lot of money per transaction, but they make up for it in volume. And I think that's one of the big problems that a lot of the marketplaces have is they're so excited about windfall margins, they forget the fact that it's really an industry that is that is formulated on repeat business. If your whole point is to make a maximum amount of money on that one transaction, you're probably not going to have the buyer walking away feeling they want to come back for more, which is ultimately what you want, right? Sure, absolutely. And I, I mean, it's one of those things, specifically the category, the average order value is so high that these customers are are expensive to acquire. It's not like, you know, you're selling a, a ton of smaller items where the customers are a little bit more interchangeable. Like the vertical that is watches, our customers are are so valuable to us. And uh, it's also just like an awesome delight moment because the expectation is is so high and there's such genuine nervousness and concern around purchasing a watch online generally that when you deliver on that, people love it. And it's the coolest feeling ever. And unlike any other product I've ever had the pleasure of working on, you know, when we sell a watch to someone, a lot of people are apprehensive. A lot of people are concerned until 
you know, they get on the phone with one of their customer service reps on our team and they chat and they, you know, talk about watches and what they love about watches and they start to feel a little bit more comfortable. And then they ultimately, you know, get a package from us and they get the authentication report and they put it on their wrist and they, and they feel really good about that purchase. And the whole time they're nervous, it just kind of all lets out in that moment. And People are awesome. Like they give us incredible reviews and they call us and they're like, you know, they, they want to meet up with us and they want to see the product. And it's just, I think it's, it's one of those things that it's hard to compare the consumer and the watch world to other verticals in many ways, because, you know, you, it's such a relationship driven thing. Like, you know, we have a bunch of customers that, you know, had to switch over to us, but had spent the last 25 years of their collecting journey only buying from one person because that's all that they trusted. And I can't think of very many other kind of e-commerce verticals that, that can relate to that. I, I Thank you so much for sharing all that. I mean, I think that it's important for people to understand what is on your mind, because when they go to the website, I think they're very confused as to exactly what, you know, this website is good at this and this website is good. at They're unclear as to how, which business is there for them. And I think that's one issue is, is, is how, as a retailer, you say, hey, customer, we're here for someone like you, because most retailers kind of want to be there for any business that will come in. But the reality is, as demographics get more and more fragmented in the watch space, which is a good thing, each I'll call it, it's not a retailer is, is, is a rough term. I consider that because you're a place to a retail outlet finds a particular type of person that they want to go for. And I think that, that the platforms need to be less shy. Like on the homepage, there should be messaging, which is essentially, you know, <laughs> we're for people like you. If you're these other people, we're great. You love watches, but you're probably not going to want to, you know, work on our platform. And do you, do you agree that there's uh, maybe now more than ever a need to communicate to the people you're trying to do business with that you, you have their interests in mind? Totally. Absolutely. And I think uh, the interesting thing is like you, you use the word e-commerce. It's, I think the, the general e-commerce space and the expectation of an e-commerce business. And if you look at like a, a, a boilerplate e-commerce business in whatever vertical online, I think there's a lot of learnings that can be brought to the watch world from like a technology and uh, user experience perspective and the like customer is always right mentality. It's the way things look and feel. It's the, you know, order tracking process that, you know, maybe felt a little bit more dated in the existing platforms on watches. But then how do you mix that with, it's kind of like, you know, the feeling of buying sneakers feels really nice from some of these modern apps, but how do you mix that with the, I don't just want to be talking to a random customer support rep. I want to be talking to someone that is a watch person. Like I want to be talking to someone that, you know, knows why, this specific watch is really interesting and can actually answer my questions. I want to actually get on the phone with someone before I buy something. A really interesting stat is like around 90% of our buyers actually talk to us before they purchase a watch. And that's like very much probably not true with a standard e-commerce vertical. Um, so it's kind of like, how do you thread that needle and give the best of both worlds in the sense that you have an app that feels like it's working the way that I would want any other product in my life to work from a technology perspective, but I still have that super hand-holdy relationship-driven trust with the product in a way that I would have with, you know, a friend or a, you know, existing more kind of in reality watch dealer. Let's transition to another topic. And this is related to uh, platforms as a discovery engine 
or a demand creation tool. If you go to the Bezel website right now, you see a lot of the watches you know. There's the popular brands and there's the popular watches from the popular brands. And you know you feel like you're in familiar territory. With that said, as you know, this represents a small percentage of the watches being produced and the amount of brands out there. How can you use technology to facilitate more of a, a sense of discovery? Whereas take a chance on something that you don't know about because you might end up liking it as opposed to feel comfortable getting that popular thing that other people are talking about. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And I think there's a lot of answers to that that, that are really important. I think all of it stems back to just general user education and watches. I think a lot of the watch community is really awesome of at, at, you know, kind of absorbing information and understanding watches. But there's also a lot of folks out there that I would say are kind of on the outskirts of the watch community, particularly in, in the U.S. that are, are not super aware of, of even the larger brands, let alone some of the more independent brands that are kind of floating on the outskirts. I think a lot of what we care about right now is, is, is in many ways, and on the editorial side, not reinventing the wheel in the sense that, you know, the goal is to tell the brand's story to bring in folks from the brand and, and kind of have conversations with them and ultimately editorialize that content. I think the new aspect for us is because our inventory is so robust, we're able to not just be a source of information about the watch, but we're also able to funnel folks to, you know, transacting on that watch. So we can write an article about a certain piece, but then we also have a number of those pieces in stock. So you're able to, to buy one if you're interested in it. I think it's that merging of, the editorialization of the space with this transactional world. Um, so investing in that a lot. We're super into kind of telling the story of a lot of notable collectors and, and things kind of in our in our ethos. So, you know, a lot of our investors happen to have been really notable collectors and they have really interesting stories to tell. Um, so bringing kind of folks into the, the space around kind of why they bought their first watch, what they bought, what they're collecting, what they love now and why they love it. And then also working with a number of independent brands to make sure that we're stocking their inventory so that, you know, as we start to understand what type of purchaser you are from a buyer base perspective? Can we recommend a piece that you might not normally have seen on your homepage, but we know it's really interesting because it has a lot of the same similarities and characteristics of what you're typically looking for? It's just, you know, from a different manufacturer. So talk a little bit about internally at Bezel. Who are some of the key decision makers? Obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're a main one, but I don't think you're the only one there. You know, explain a little bit about the culture, the types of things that is, is discussed in, internally, maybe some of the disagreements, because I think that helps a little bit understand, um, you know, not only sort of like what your goals and agendas are, but, you know, who are the people are and the personalities behind all this? Yeah, it's, I think it's, I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's the, it's the most fun place to work if you love watches in the sense that it's, to what I said in the beginning, we, we structure the culture very much like a, like a technology business. We, we feel like a, a modern startup with a kind of cool, airy office, but, you know, the folks that are in the office are one half seasoned, you know, technology it, it, executives and and engineers and things like that. And then the other half are folks that spent their entire career in the watch world. And then there's like kind of creatives and, and marketers that are that are floating around as well. It's it's a really interesting environment in the sense that also we're getting watches that are coming in, in in large quantities every day. And so it's such a fun environment to 
you know, be able to see all these cool things come in. They go through the authentication room, they go into the watchmaking room, and you're able to kind of see these pieces that, I mean, certainly for myself, I, I did not have access to prior to this business. So it's been a really fun experience to, I don't know, get to get to have an engineer who is relatively new to the watch space, see a, a, you know, a brand new grail watch come in, go through the process, watch it being authenticated and diagnostically checked, and then talk to, you know, one of the authenticators about, you know, the provenance of the watch and the horological history of the watch and why it's significant and, and, and what touch points to, to care about. We all have all these, you know, the, the team rallies around when we'll have watches that have crazy, uh, authentication issue stories. We had a watch that, because we do also, aside from just authentication and diagnostic testing, we uh, checked everything against a lost register to make sure it was never reported stolen before you received the watch. We had a watch that was in a high-profile samurai sword heist in England that we had to, you know, mark as stolen because of that, obviously. And it was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, so it's just a fun, you know, storytelling environment that kind of bridges the, you know, the technology feeling of a startup with, you know, the more storied watch environment. It's kind of amazing to to think about the the life that watches have today, right? It's one thing totally. why they're designed. It's one thing who makes them. It's one thing how to buy them and who owns them. But the sort of actual circumstances that these watches find themselves in go from glamorous to to terrifying, right? Totally. And, and, and some of that is, and we have different buyers, like some buyers, they want an unworn watch. They don't want it to have ever been touched by anyone. And they want to like, you know, write their own story with it. And we have collectors that, you know, they love hearing about the provenance of the watch and where it came from and, and feeling like it's lived a life that they can now carry on. Um, I think another part that's really interesting from a user education side is also just the fact that a lot of these watches are tool watches and, and, you know, educating individuals, which would surprise you, like a lot of buyers don't know what the watches are intended to have done. And, and like a Daytona is not just a watch that, you know, you're supposed to wear in a boardroom or, you know, a Submariner is not just a, a watch to, to buy and, and flex with, but, you know, they had a purpose and they did a really cool thing. And there's a history around that. I think conveying that, in a romantic way is just really exciting. And personally, like I'm a sucker for it in the sense that, you know, if I put it on, if I'm going on a plane, I still always wear a GMT or, you know, if I'm, if I'm driving and I want to feel like I'm, you know, I'm Paul Newman, I'll throw on a Daytona and feel like I'm embodying the, the kind of tool aspect of a watch. And I think there's just something so special about that, that it creates feeling and in, in what you're wearing that I can't really equate to very much anything else. I love the passion behind it. I'm, you know, we'll have to have more conversations about this, but it's so interesting for me how this phase of you being a watch collector has changed your tastes, has changed your behavior. You know, it's it's just, it's such a fascinating thing because for myself, you know, I made my business, um, my hobby, which was watches. And that, I think I've bucked the trend. Like people are surprised, like, Ariel, you still like watches after all these years? I'm like, yeah, I really do. I have some different opinions on the industry, of course, but um, it, it, it's an interesting thing. I guess, you know, my next question, we're almost out of time, is how much do you think the average consumer really wants to know about the behind the scenes? You know, like, obviously there's hyper collectors who just want to have the ability to learn everything they want to know who made these watches and why and all the history. But to a degree, there's like a certain level of, of blur that most consumers want. What do you think is sort of the right amount of, you know what's going on in the watch industry, but not, not so much that it kind of ruins it for you? I think the, it's a great question. And I think it varies person to person. I think at a high level, 
I imagine the buyer, and I certainly feel this way, when they receive a watch, wants to feel good about it. Like they want to feel like they can trust that my watch is a good example of the watch. I am not going to have to have issues with this watch. I have, I'm in no way been fooled or faked or there hasn't been anything fraudulent that happened in this experience. And I can put this watch on and just really enjoy how beautiful and great it is, right? And I think as long as they can still maintain that feeling, the storytelling and the information behind that watch is is interesting. It's just there's undeniably a threshold where it's like, hmm, I wish I I didn't know about I didn't know about that. I didn't know that this was sitting in a bag somewhere and on a dealer's desk kind of a thing. And it didn't just come from whatever it is, right? Like, so I think that's probably where, as you mentioned, the veil needs to live. But undeniably, it's like, you know, I think we want to be transparent about, you know, highlighting who's selling these watches and who's doing a great example of selling these watches. I think we focus more on the storytelling of why these watches are significant culturally, horologically, and just historically. Um, And just, you know, to the very first point, making sure that regardless of the storytelling or the provenance of that specific watch, the buyer knows that it's been authenticated, it's been diagnostically tested, it's been serviced correctly, and it's going to, you know, be the watch that they can go write their own version of the watch story with. Last question. What, in your opinion, is the right way for a consumer to get rid of a watch that they want to probably turn into another watch. And some context here is essentially this, that people tend to consolidate their collections. If you look at people's buying behavior and the number of years that they've been collecting watches, at the end of that period, they should have more watches than they do. But what ends up happening is they end up selling some watches or getting rid of them. And if you poll them as to why they're doing it, it isn't to make a bunch of money, it's to get another watch. So the question then goes into, okay, there's all these great ways to buy a watch, but a lot of times you want to offload a watch you have in order to help get another one. What do you think is the the right way of doing, the efficient way of doing that? Um, And and, and, and what can you talk about uh, where you think that area of development should be? Totally. And I, I, it's kind of a lame answer, but I would say I don't know if there is a right or a wrong way to decide when to sell a watch. I think my biased answer is that, you know, our whole product is oriented around building an awesome experience for, for collectors to trade in and out of watches. So, you know, my, my branded answer is, is like download the bezel app and, you know, we'll walk you through the process and we'll advise you on the sale process. I think I, I really like Zoe's answer. I, I, I listened to her, her on the podcast, um, with you a, a couple of days ago. I, I think as long as you're not selling a watch that you can't replace, I think it, I know you can treat it like a liquid market and, and you're able to find that watch, maybe at a slightly different price, higher or lower than, than what you paid before. But there are certainly, you know, the ones that got away. And I think every collector that's been collecting for a while has a version of that. And, but also that's part of the journey. And I think you do that and then you lust to find it and then you find a new version of that. So, you know, I think everyone has different financial situations and motivations on on what they can and can't do from a from an ownership perspective. I would just say that, you know, make sure you're being thoughtful about who you're selling it to, and, you know, you're aware transparently of, of the rate that you're paying when you're doing that. And, you know, you're doing it because you feel like you've, you know, really thought through that decision. And, you know, you're maybe replacing it with something really cool that you want. 
That's uh, that's been a great conversation. Um, before we go, why don't you just let everyone know um, where to learn more about you, and uh, you know where else you want them to go on the internet to learn about Bezel, et cetera. Awesome. Yeah, the the app is called Bezel. Obviously, you can find it on the the iOS App Store or getbezel.com. Uh, I'm obviously available, and my Instagram is just my name, Quade Walker, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well under my name. So you know, if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out. I'm also just Quade at getbezel.com. So. Uh, any questions at all, would love to to learn about your collecting journey and help you find a watch. Quaid, I'll have to have you back on uh, soon because there's obviously a lot more to talk about. Um, everyone, this has been the Superlative Podcast with Quaid Walker of Bezel. Quaid, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablog2watch.com.